So you're a professor at UCSB in the education department. Sort of. So I teach classes in the education department. My primary appointment is actually through the Division of Student Affairs. So my main job is actually in the Dean of Students office. But as a part of my job, I do get to teach two different classes for the Department of Education, which is really cool. Really? How does that work? It's a great question. I have no idea. Um, so there, that's not true. So there's a couple classes that student affairs has sort of thought, you know, these are things that our students should know. And we're the ones who really have the background for students to learn from us about these basically. And so we, different folks in student affairs have sort of pitched ideas and basically all you need to get a class on the books is for the academic to academic Senate to approve it, to have somebody with a PhD who's willing to like oversee the whole thing. And then a department to host it. And so the education department has kindly hosted a number of these classes for us. So there's my classes on the first year and transfer experience. There's classes on wellness and students and that kind of thing. There's classes on educational leadership. So there's, there's a couple, a small handful of classes that folks who are not full professors run um, through that department. That's interesting. And what do you do on the other side of not teaching? <laughs> my job is very much other duties as assigned, which is sort of what I love about it. I love that every day I come in and it's like, I have no idea what I'm going to be doing that day. So one of the things that I do is that I am our campus's point person on hazing prevention. So I do a lot of work trying to understand the culture around hazing at UCSB and figure out sort of how we can educate our whole campus community and try to make some, some positive strides there. I also work on organizational conduct. So when our registered campus organizations are having trouble, um, they, you know, we look into it and run that process. I, what else do I do? I seriously, so many things. Um, so the, the classes that I teach, and then um, I do a lot of work on our university awards, which are the awards that student affairs gives out to graduating seniors and graduate students at the end of every year. Um, which is one of the most rewarding things I get to do because it's just so fun to celebrate our students and all the amazing things that they do as they're graduating. And then I'm also our student parent liaison. So what that means is that when a student is usually going through something really hard um, and they or their family are sort of trying to navigate the way that these problems are intersecting with school, I can step in and help connect them with the resources that they need because, you know, UCSB and I think a lot of higher ed institutions loves an acronym and they do not love to spell it out. And when you are really stressed or going through some kind of family emergency, it's really hard to remember all of the things that you've been taught about what resources are there. And so my job is to sort of act as the connection point to help students and their families connect with the resources that they need at these times when they're really going through something. Wow, that really is a lot. And would you say it's a passion or did this kind of just fall on your lap and you just started taking? Higher ed is definitely my passion. Working in student affairs is definitely my passion. The job I have now is definitely a falling into my lap kind of a thing. Um, 
I would say up until fairly recently in my career, I ascribed to the yes and method of professional development, which is something I stole from like stand-up comics where like, you know, if you're in a scene with somebody and you're sort of ad-libbing and they say something instead of shutting it down, you're supposed to say yes and. Um, so I have just sort of accepted the things that fell in my lap. Um, when I finished my PhD, I was really, really burnt out and I knew that I did not want to be in a super student facing role because I just couldn't deal with it. Um, so I started my work here in the registrar's office, scheduling all the classes, which was absolutely the right job at the right time for me. Um, it worked really well with my brain. I really like puzzles and problem solving. And so like putting all those pieces together worked really well. Um, and from there, I did that job for about four years. Um, and right when I was starting to think that maybe it was time for me to find something new, I was starting to get a little bored. I was thinking about applying for another job on campus and actually went to talk with a mentor of mine to see what she would think about me applying for this job. Like, was it the right thing to do? And it was kind of funny because we sat down and she let me tell her the entire thing and like all of my pros and cons. And then she goes, okay, well, let's put all that over to the, here to the side. What would you think about coming to work for me? And I was like, wait, what? And she goes, yeah, I wasn't sure if you had already heard about this. So another woman who's a mentor of mine got an opportunity to move with her family to England for a year and a half or so, and they needed someone to fill in for part of her jobs. So I spent about a year and a half working half time in the registrar and half time in Dean of Students. And when she came back, they eventually created a position for me to apply for that was doing a lot of the same things and sort of like working together. So it's one of these things where like the job that I have now, frankly, is not something I would have like seen a job listing for and thought like, oh yes, that job, that is what I want to apply for. But it was sort of the right place at the right time. And I've gotten really lucky and gotten to work with a lot of really cool people. And it's, it's shown me sort of a lot of what's out there in student affairs and helped me understand kind of what is out there and what I might want to do. Yeah. So you mentioned the class registry, right? Can you explain a little bit more, a little more about that? I don't think students and people really understand what it go, what goes into scheduling classes. Yeah. So the registrar is one of these offices that I feel like is really, really important for students and students have no idea what the registrar is. Like I didn't know what the registrar did before I worked there, frankly. Um, so the registrar handles all of like the academic records for the for the whole school. So like, they're the ones who check to make sure that you've got enough classes to graduate. Like obviously a computer does most of it, but they're the ones who like go through at the end and really like completely check and verify everything and order the diplomas, print the diplomas, all of those kinds of things. They're in charge of all of the transcripts. So like, if you are going to go to grad school and you need a transcript, like that's, who's going to get it for you. They do all kinds of technological stuff. So they manage most of the student information systems on campus. Like they, they're, I don't know how, how many other departments on campus have this, but like they have their own whole tech team because they handle so many complex computer systems. Um, they also have a lot to do with sort of like making sure that courses are offered that are hopefully meeting a lot of the needs of students. They have like a really holistic view of what classes are being offered. And so one of the things that I was doing when I worked there was like, you know, identifying that like, okay, we're really running low on classroom space for these types of rooms. Like we need more classes for this. Actually, one of the coolest things that I got to do working in that job was provide a lot of input for that new classroom building, the um, interactive learning pavilion that just opened. I got to sit in a on several important conversations about that and say, you know, like, this is what I'm hearing. Like when we go to schedule the classes, this is what's missing. Like, you know, we have all of these students. One of the things that was a big issue is that we 
got a lot more students about five, seven years ago. And most departments answer that to that was instead of offering more classes, they just made classes bigger. So the rooms like Campbell Hall and Ivy Theater were jam-packed all of the hours that we could have them. And because they were making the classes larger, there were a lot more discussion sections being offered for those large classes. And so we were really, really tight on small classrooms because they were adding so many discussion sections. So like before that, people didn't really have discussion sections on Friday. Like students wouldn't want to go to class on Friday. And now you are seeing students in classes like all day on Friday until five o'clock and well into the evening on other days. So it was a really interesting opportunity to see some of the trends and like space usage on campus and also like what our students are taking and what they need. Um, And it was kind of cool when I first started working there, they still had this like fairly low tech system that involved actually like printing a schedule with like a page for each classroom that the registrar controlled and like, you know, it would print the schedule as it was, but then you would go in and like fill things in as you placed things. Like there was a computer system that would place most of the classes and then you'd have to go through and sort of like figure out how to make the other classes all fit. Um, and then at, while I was working there, we got a new software system that did it a little bit more and was a lot more high tech, which was great <laughs> because it was like, okay, we're actually using a real computer for this now, not this computer program that looks like it was, you know, built in the eighties, which it probably was. Um, and so that was really neat also because it gave me the opportunity to really like look at this new software, figure out what the best practices were going to be and teach all of the departments on campus, um, how to use it. And that was another thing I loved about that job is that I knew at least one person in every single academic department on this campus, because almost all of them schedule classes using rooms that the registrar controls. And so there was so much negotiation and, um, you know, fine tuning and answering questions and those types of things. And so it really broadened my network in ways that you don't often see in student affairs. So that was a really neat opportunity to get to know a lot of people who I probably would never would have met otherwise. That is crazy. And then you said you, you ended up getting another job. And then from there, what happened? So that was when I started thinking about applying for another job and they offered me the chance to work halftime in the registrar and halftime basically in my, in a role very similar to my current role. And so I was most of the time, like sitting in the registrar's office for like half the day and then coming over to the student resource building, which is where my office is now to work the other half of the day. And so that was sort of a strange period because it was like the folks in the registrar, I think could kind of tell that I like had one foot out the door, but I also wasn't fully over here. And so it was like a little bit of this odd, like I don't belong either place thing, but it was a great opportunity to sort of get some new opportunities, learn some new things pick up some new skills and sort of transition into this job that I have now. Nice. Dang. And when did, when was the process of you becoming a professor? So that happened sort of around the same time. So the classes that I teach now used to be taught by another person who got a new job kind of about a year after I started working here halftime. And so we were starting to think about what it might look like if I was going to stay in this in a similar position full time, even after the woman who's now my supervisor came back from being abroad. And he got another position in another department on campus that was not going to allow for him to keep teaching these classes. And so they needed someone with a PhD, which I had. Um, and so he sort of, he was in the running for this job for kind of a while. And he was like, you know, how would you feel about taking these classes? And I didn't know anything about them. Like I had never seen these classes. I vaguely sort of knew what they were, but I really didn't know what it looked like or how to do it. 
But I was kind of like, yeah, I mean, sure. Like I was, I was at the point where I was trying to miss having student interaction. So I was like, yeah, I could do that. Um, and then he found out he got the job in August of that would have been like 2019. And I started teaching it like six weeks later, which was really stressful because I had a very short amount of time to like figure out what this class is and how the logistics of it work, which is pretty complicated and how I was going to teach it. Um, and so that first quarter, I actually co-taught the course with um, someone who was at the time the registrar, who was also sort of on her way out. Um, and that was really great because it was like, okay, at least I have another person in there with me who is going to help me out and like step up if I get completely lost. But it was definitely sort of trial by fire. So I taught that class twice. And then as we all know, at the end of winter quarter, 2020, the world sort of shut down. And so right before I was getting ready to teach the first year version of my courses. So the first two times I taught it was for transfer students. And then right before I was getting ready to teach the first year course for the first time, they sent us all home. And I suddenly had to learn how to teach this completely different class fully online. Like no, no synchronous portion at all. Like the entire thing was online. And so that was its own real experiment and challenge, but it taught me a lot about teaching online, which is something that before that I was like, I would never do that. Like you have to be in the classroom and all these things. And now I really see how valuable the online classes are and can work even now that we're able to be back in person. Like there's elements of that that I still keep in my course because I have such good content from all of those years of teaching online. Yeah. Did you have to do any training before or just like because you had a PhD, you were able to teach? Oh no. Cause I had a PhD. I was able to teach. I mean, I taught in grad school. So as a graduate student, I was a TA a whole bunch of times, but I also had the opportunity to teach for both the music department, which is where I got my degree and also in the writing department. So I did have a fair bit of experience teaching. Um, I didn't actually finish it, but I did a lot of what, of a program that UCSB calls CCUT, which is the certificate for college and university teaching, I think it's, but it's basically a certificate that you can add onto your degree that shows that you have put in the extra effort to really become a good instructor. And I never wound up finishing the last parts of it because I wasn't sure that it was going to benefit me long-term, which is sort of hilarious now because I do actually teach a lot, but I did most of the components of that. So I did have a fair bit of teaching experience. I had a fair bit of sort of like learning about teaching under my belt, but I had never taken an education course. Um, I had never sat in an education course. And then all of a sudden I was teaching an education course, which was definitely a little nerve wracking. But the thing about the courses that I teach is that they're you know, they can be improved, I think. Like one of the things that I want to do is learn a little bit more about educational theory and leadership development so that I can make my courses better. But the meat of my classes, as you know, from being in it is really helping students to understand the research university and our research university. You know, what specifically can we help you with here at UCSB? And since I've now been at UCSB basically, well, I took one year off to do my dissertation research, um, abroad, but other than that, I've been here constantly since 2009. So I do know this university pretty darn well at this point. So that's sort of what gave me the qualifications to teach this class. And it's so far, I think it served me pretty well. Yeah. And I, I would love for you to explain why are classes like that specifically for the incoming freshmen and the transfer students, why are those important? Oh my gosh. You know, I think they're important for everyone. Um, one thing is that when most students, I mean, when you come to a new place, it's sort of be, usually because you've outgrown the plot, your past place, whether that's a community college or high school or what have you. But 
when you come to a new place, you're usually like going from being the big fish in a small pond to being a small fish in a big pond. And that feeling is really disorienting for a lot of students. And also a lot of students don't know what they're not going to know until they get here and they're in way over their heads. And so I think it's really helpful to have students understand where they are um, and understand what's available to them. But particularly, we have so many first-generation students at UCSB, excuse me, students whose parents, you know, can't help prepare them for these experiences. And higher education, I mean, I love what I do, but one of the things we talk about in the class is that higher ed has a lot of really bad problems in it. This is a system created by old white guys for younger white guys and not nearly enough has changed since then. And so we have a lot of students who are coming in at a distinct disadvantage because they are not the target population of the U.S. educational institution as it was founded in the 1600s and not enough has changed. And so it's really important to me to help our students who haven't had those upper-class white upbringing experiences for them to see what we think of as the hidden curriculum of student affairs. So it's not just like going to class and doing your homework, but also like, oh, this is why you should go to office hours and why it's important to make relationships with your faculty members so that they can help you get opportunities later. Those are the kind of things that if someone doesn't tell you to do, you might not know. Um, And there's lots of little things like that where like, if you haven't been told, other students have. And so they're getting those opportunities that you're not getting because, you know, a parent, someone at their high school, someone has told them those things. But so many of our students don't have parents or family members who have gone to college before them or didn't go to these like super top tier high schools. They just worked really hard and did really well and worked their way to UCSB, which is remarkable. But that doesn't mean that they're on an equal playing field when they get here. And so one of the things that I really hope that my classes do is at least a little bit, even that playing field and try to sort of show some of what's going on um, behind the scenes, reveal a lot of that hidden curriculum and hopefully help students, you know, feel like they have a little bit more understanding of what's going on around them so that they can navigate the system a little bit better, even if it wasn't built for them. That's awesome. Because because of your class, I scored a research assistant position. Um, that was one of your assignments, it's like yeah. email or or don't email, just like, you know, make a make an email, whether you send it or not. And because of that, I got a position and that's four units of upper division that I didn't have to take a class for. I, I was just doing research or, or being a research assistant. So that was because of you. That's amazing. And I think a lot of students did that. And, you know, one of the things I tell students is that that's the kind of opportunity that you might not know about because you sort of, those research assistantships, those internships, a lot of those things are things that if somebody doesn't tell you, hey, this is available to you, you should really check it out, you might not find out about it or you might not find out about it until it's kind of too late and the other people have already snapped up those opportunities. So it's exactly those types of things that I want students to know about so that they're not too late to take advantage of the opportunities that they have by coming to a school like UCSB. Yeah, because in the... Within the research systems that I was a part of, there was only five like available opportunities, right? So that's very little, and it's cool. I don't know if I, I'm pretty sure I learned this in your class. You don't have to have the same major as the people you're uh, being an RA for. So that was really cool to learn as well. And in terms of the freshman and the transfer class, do you notice a difference between someone freshly coming out of high school, you teaching them, versus someone coming out of a CC or a, or a different university? Yes, uh, big a big difference. Um, 
One of the reasons that we teach the freshman class in the spring instead of in fall and winter is because the freshmen particularly come and they are those huge fish from a small pond. It takes them some time to quite frankly, sort of get their come up. It's a little bit, you know, we see, uh, and it's super normal, but a lot of our first year students have their first couple quarters, their grades are a lot lower because they're trying to figure out how to operate at a school like UCSB. And that's not just like how to do well at school, but that's a big part of it because the work that they're asked to do here is really different than what they were asked to do in high school. Um, but they're also trying to figure out how to navigate like living in a dorm and, you know, managing their time. And like, there's no one telling them to go to bed and these types of things, which certainly not all of our students had someone doing those things for them before they came, but it's a really big adjustment. Whereas the transfer students come in and not that our freshmen aren't working super hard, but our transfer students I find have had to work in a different way in order to get to UCSB. A lot of our transfer students, you know, are going to community college and also working a job on the side. You know, they've had those experiences and there's just, when when I meet with transfer students, there's just this drive. Like one of the things is I'm constantly sort of reminding our transfer students that like, hey, you're here, you made it. You're allowed to like relax a little bit and enjoy this experience because most of the transfer students I meet have just been eyes on the prize. Like, okay, got to graduate high school and like figure out the CC thing. Okay. Got to get all of my credits at CC so I can get into the UC. Um, and it's hard for them to like settle down and be like, okay, I'm here. Like I made it. I can, I can enjoy this experience now. Um, and so, yeah, it's, there's an eagerness with both freshmen and transfer students, but it's definitely really different. Interesting. And what would you say is the most difficult part of being a professor? Oh, that's a great question. Um, One of the things that's really difficult about this class is that in the way that it operates currently, we have discussion sections that are team taught by staff members or graduate students and undergraduate students um, who are paired up. And I think that it's a really amazing model, but it's also a model that was set up in like the 80s. This class has been around since the 80s in one form or another. Um, And the way that society thinks about and values work is really, really different now than it was back then. And students need for units is really different than it was. So the undergraduate students who help in my class get four units of credit, which is great, but they don't all need those four units in that way. And they don't all have time to the time that you have to put in order to do a class like this. So it's gotten increasingly difficult to find staff members who are willing to volunteer for this type of opportunity um, and have capacity to volunteer for this kind of opportunity. And then also students who can make it fit their schedule and those types of things. So for this particular class, the staffing and logistics are definitely the hardest part. Um, And I think also it's hard to know that I'm not reaching all of the students. Like I can, there's always, you know, five or seven students in the front, front couple rows who I can tell that I'm really getting to. And I know that I'm getting to some of the others, but it's also really hard to know that there's students in my classroom who are struggling. And no matter what I say, like, I'm not going to be able to pull them in enough to help. Um, so that's hard. Yeah, I really did look forward to your lectures. I believe we only met once a week, right? On mm-hmm. Mondays. Yep. And I was like, whoa, I wish I could hear her more. Cause you your your teaching style, you know, you're very like professional the way you speak. It's it reels you in, you know, and, and your knowledge and the story you told us about like how you came up and how in your field and stuff. So I really did wish it was like two days of of your lecture, you know? Thank you. Yeah. I I I hope other people feel the same way. Um, I really enjoy lecturing. I, my background is, is in music and I'm, 
a performer at heart. So I do actually really enjoy lecturing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard. It's a lot of work. Um, and actually I, I come home on those days after I lecture and I'm just exhausted. Like I always forget how much work it is to be that engaged for an hour, even just an hour and 15 minutes, like being up there and trying to hold people's attention and say the right thing to, to draw people in so that they'll hear this information. Um, Cause you know, some of the students are there because they just want the four units and they've heard it's an easy class, which like, that's fine. Like that, I don't blame them, but then there's other students who I know really need this and I just, I hope I'm reaching them. Yeah. Well, I'm one of them. So that's proof. And I was curious, are there any differences that you've noticed from your time in undergrad to what you see now? Even if you're not a student now, but you're able to see students, is there any like differences you're like, whoa, like this was not a thing when I was an undergrad? You know, it's really hard to say. My undergraduate experience was really, really different from any undergraduate here. So I went to a small liberal arts school in upstate New York that had a conservatory program, a conservatory style program inside it. So basically I went to a music school that existed almost independently of the rest of the college. Um, And so my undergraduate experience was really different. Like my biggest class in college was probably a hundred students, maybe. And we took a lot of really low unit classes so that my schedule, especially the first couple of years was much closer to like a high schooler schedule. Like I would be taking seven or eight, one or two or three unit classes, not, you know, three, four unit classes with tons of work outside. It was just a really different opportunity. Um, but one thing I will definitely say, I mean, so when I was in college, back in the dark ages, when I was in college, smartphones were really not a thing. Um, texting wasn't even really that much of a thing. Like you could text, but like you had to have a special texting plan. Um, and so students were just a lot more disconnected. Like some students did bring their laptops to class, but I'm trying to remember if my class, if my, like the building where most of my classes were even had Wi-Fi at the time. Like my dorm, I don't think had Wi-Fi. Like I'm pretty sure I had to plug my, my laptop into the internet in a building back in the day. So like just the way students engaged with course material was really different. Like you pretty much had to use the pen and paper. Um, you, there were a lot fewer distractions in class. And I'm so glad. Cause like if those types of, if Candy Crush and like Discord and texting and all that stuff had been around when I was in college, I would have learned nothing because it's so easy to get really distracted by those things. Um, so I think that is, is a big change. Certainly it's just like the technology and the ubiquity of like being able to be completely connected at all times. Yeah. And I really like how the class you teach is structured because it's not something you could look up or cheat on, or it's something you kind of have to engage in, you know, whether you like it or not, you have to kind of interact because it's asking you a lot of questions that only you could answer. So that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, I tell students at the beginning of every quarter, like you could show up to class and not really pay attention and like kind of frankly, like half-ass most of the work and get a solid B in the course, but you're probably not going to get that much out of it. But if you show up and really engage with the content and really like think about the work, it's not that much work and you're going to get a lot more out of it. Like it's definitely, my classes are very much a, you get what you put in kind of an experience. And so it's always a pleasure to see the students who are putting in the work like you did and getting, really getting something out of it. And then there's a lot of students who are like, oh, okay, cool. Like I will just like take that B and move on with my life. And that's fine too. I mean, I have no delusions that my class is the most important class for anyone. Like this class counts for no one's major. So I totally get it. But 
but yeah, I'm pretty upfront about that. And I think a lot of students do take it to heart and do really work to get something out of it. And then there's always some who don't, and that's fine too. Yeah. It's cool because as a transfer student, I mean, you don't really know anyone, but that class really allowed you to because of the sections that we were in. Like I've met a lot of people that I, I, I'm still connected to, whether on social media or like real life. So that, that was really cool. Yeah. And I mean, that's one of the stated goals of my class. Like we want you to learn about a research unit university in general. We want you to learn about the opportunities available to you here, but we also like want you to get to know other transfer students. Like I think the transfer students have a unique challenge in that you come in and you don't necessarily have those traditional, like quote unquote, first year experiences that a lot of the freshmen have where like, you're all in a dorm together and like maybe like doing that, like first week of school, like first year student kind of things together. And you're not like, there's no sign on your back saying, Hey, I'm a transfer student. Come be my friend. So like, it's really hard to find other transfer students who are having the same, like pretty unique experience, um, or not unique, but very different experience from a lot of other students on campus. So I think it's really valuable to really give space for that in the class so that you can find each other and like get to know each other and build those relationships because you have so much less time than students who came in as first year. And it, those relationships and those experiences are important. Like that's an important part of college, even though it's not going to like give you the book learning that some of your other classes are going to. Yeah. And in class, I believe you said you went to UCSB as well, right? So my PhD is from UCSB. So I did my undergraduate at Ithaca College in upstate New York. Um, and then I came out here to do a PhD. Um, and I guess this is a good time and I need to share my story. So I, I my undergraduate degree is in music performance. I thought I was going to be an opera singer. Um, spoiler alert, I'm not. Um, and I wound up applying to graduate programs in musicology, which is basically like the history and culture of classical music. Um, so I was studying those dead white guys that we were talking about earlier. Um, and so I came to UCSB to, to do my PhD and I did my first three years of coursework, really enjoyed it, got a pretty prestigious fellowship to go abroad. I spent a year in Prague in the Czech Republic, um, doing my dissertation research. And while I was there, I started to realize like, oh man, like this is really hard. Um, and also like I was starting to realize then and started to realize even more when I came back and was doing the dissertation part of the PhD, which is really, really hard, that I do not do well without like external validation. And in order to be successful as an academic, at least in this type of field, you really have to like get a lot of satisfaction from doing that work by yourself. Like, especially in a field like history, which is a finite thing. Like I can't just invent additional periods of history to then research. Like there's only so much of classical music history to study. So it has to get increasingly niche and increasingly specific to the point where you know that only like three or four other people are going to care even a little bit about what you're talking about. So you really have to get that satisfaction from within yourself. And I was like, oh man, like, no, this is not it. Like being alone in a room with all of these documents, like as cool as it is the first time you're like, oh my gosh, this like famous composer that I'm like really interested in touched this piece of paper 200 years ago after you've been doing that for six months and there's no one to talk to you and it's cold and dark by the time you leave at four o'clock. It's really, it's very isolating. And especially when I came back, um, my last year of graduate school, I was teaching in the writing program. And so the students would have to come in and talk to me in office hours. It was like a requirement for the class that they had to come talk to me. And sometimes students would come in and they would be telling me like, oh, you know, like my paper's going to be late. And they would start telling me 
about their lives or like things that they were struggling with. And I would say like, oh, well, did you know that we have this resource on campus? Or did you know that you can go over here and they'll help you with that? And they'd be like, what? No, like I had no idea. And realizing that those experiences were the most valuable part of my graduate program to me is like seeing that I was making a tangible impact for these students. Even if it was just like four or five students over the course of seven years, like knowing that I told them something that made a difference, that I made them feel seen and heard and that they could tell that I cared, that was what I really needed. And so those experiences combined with a very short stint uh, in the Graduate Student Association, which is not my thing because I'm not a good politician. I do not have a poker face. Like I'm not a political person. Um, I say what's in my head most of the time for better or for worse. But I was briefly an officer in the Graduate Students Association and had the really great privilege to serve on a committee that hired our current vice chancellor for student affairs, which was a pretty large committee and it was important and it met for a long time. And it really gave me the opportunity to see what a career in student affairs could look like because there were folks from all across campus on that committee there, you know, we met with candidates from all over the place and getting to see the different opportunities that they had all had before applying for this job, getting to see what the other folks on the committee were doing really showed me that student affairs was a career that I could have where I could still be on a college campus, which I really enjoyed. I could still be around academia, but I could be having those more direct connections with students and doing things that would really directly help students versus doing this research that was like, okay, maybe one person will buy my book. Um, And it was just, it was not going to be, I knew that that was not the right place for me. And so it was really exciting to finally be like, okay, this is something I can do. Um, And of course it helps that By then I had gotten married. My husband um, is an electrical engineer. He works in town. Um, He works in a fairly niche field of engineering. And so he really kind of wanted to be here for his job, which is, you know, in engineering, a much better paying job, spoiler alert, than higher ed. And so this was another way that we could stay in Santa Barbara. And we had made a lot of really wonderful friends here. We didn't really want to leave, but I also knew that I was not going to be employable as a professor here. We would have to go somewhere. So it was just sort of all, the cards all fell into place and I started working in the registrar's office like four days after I finished my my, uh, PhD. I graduated on Saturday or Sunday and I think I started work on Wednesday. Dang, that's crazy, man. Actually, no, they wanted me to start on Wednesday and I was like, "Um, my parents came out from the East Coast to watch me graduate. Like, can I have until Monday? And they were like, yeah, okay, Monday, but that's it, we need you Monday. Yeah. and. Have you ever thought of becoming like, or just focusing on teaching or is the students a fair thing? Like you like the balance? Yeah. I I love student affairs. I like teaching too. Um, Don't get me wrong, but that is not the part of my work that really makes me tick most. You know, I, I really, I do enjoy teaching. I enjoy lecturing. I enjoy making connections with students, but it's not the part of my job that like gets me running to work in the morning. Dang. And you also, is it 120 that you teach? Is it, you so I teach Ed 118, which is the transfer class, Ed 20, which is the freshman class. And then mm-hmm. Ed 120 is the class that the co-leaders who are the students who help with this discussion sections, they take that class in order to get units for their um, for their work as mm-hmm. co-leaders, basically. Um, I don't usually teach that. We have a lead TA for the course who's a graduate student in the education department, and that person teaches that course with my supervision. And so I meet with the lead TA and they, it's, it's cool because we have a different lead TA most years. And so they get to sort of put their own spin on the course. And we talk about, okay, here are the things that the students really need to know. And here are the things that, you know, what do you think you might want them to 
to learn about and how would you go about presenting this? And I usually show them like, these are what people have done in the past. And then they sort of take all of those things and put it together and form whatever it is that they want to do to help guide the co-leaders that quarter. Interesting. And in your opinion and expertise, why do you think higher education is important? Not just for like the people at UCSB, just in general, like for people in society. Oh man. I mean, the cynical answer is that our American society has evolved to the point where it's really hard to get a job if you don't have at least a bachelor's degree. Is that the way it should be? Absolutely not. But that's the way society is going at this point. And so like for that reason, it's important. Like if you want to be a player in American society, if you want to do well, if you want to like major scare quotes, achieve that American dream, which like we all know is only possible for the most part if you are white um, and wealthy. But if you want to have those experiences, you need a college degree. But, you know, the other less cynical answer is just that it's, I think for me, college was a really important experience, not just for what I learned at the classroom, but also for the things that I learned outside of the classroom. You know, some of the people who are still my closest friends are the people that I met in college. Um, I was, you know, I come from an upper middle class white background. My parents are wonderful. We had a really close family relationship. I'm an only child and I was fairly sheltered my entire life. And so when I went to college, I moved like a thousand miles from home. And it was my first time living more than 10 minutes from my parents for more than six weeks. And it was eye-opening. It was really hard. I actually, I used to get really, really homesick. And I knew that if I didn't go to college far away, I would be home every weekend and I would never get over it. So that's one of the reasons that I wound up going to school so far away. But, you know, you have to learn to be independent in a way that a lot of people are not when they finish high school. You have to, you know, learn how to manage adult relationships. Like, I feel like I did not learn to be a good friend or a good partner until I had had a lot of these adult, you know, friendships and relationships in a way that I could not have had when I was living at home with my parents. Um, And I think it's also an opportunity to like get some space from your family, get some space from the place where you grew up, which might be really similar to where you're in school or might be really different. But it's, I talk about this a lot in my classes that it's a really exciting opportunity to consider for the first time without the influence of the folks who brought you up, what is important to you, not what your family tells you should be important to you, not what your, you know, community at home tells you should be important to you, but like, what is actually important to you? And how do you want to take that information about your values and make a plan for what you want to do next? And so I think a lot of those experiences that are outside of the classroom are just as important as the cl- experiences that you have in the classroom and the learning that you get from going to class. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I feel so strongly about student affairs, because it requires a lot of support for students to have those, what we call co-curricular experiences, the things that are happening outside of the classroom, whether it's just hanging out with your friends on the weekend, learning how to live in, you know, on your own in an apartment or joining clubs, getting really involved in leadership, you know, all of those kinds of things require support because you can't learn how to do those things without making some mistakes. You can't learn how to do those things without some support, but that's, so that's a really important role. I think that student affairs can play um, in a student's development. And that's one of the reasons that I think college is so important is that it's, it's hard to have those experiences living at home. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And then you mentioned student affairs and I was curious about like the Hazen aspect. Is that, and I don't, I've never really seen it besides like movies. Is that like an actual issue in, in the real world? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, 
you hear about a very public, like on the media death relating to hazing, like once every year, probably I would say like every academic year, there's at least one somewhere in this nation student who dies from hazing that makes national news, which means there's a good handful that don't make national news. Um, those are the things that you hear about in the news that are like what we call like big H hazing. So the very severe cases, those are really uncommon statistically, but much more common are what we think of the little H hazing. Um, we call it sometimes subtle or harassment hazing. These are things like telling folks who are trying to join your organization or stay in your organization, like, okay, well, you need to have this book with you all the time. And like, if someone sees you and asks you for the book, you have to be able to hand it to them or you're going to get in trouble or I'm going to call you at 12 a.m. like in the middle of the night and you would need to be at my apartment in 10 minutes or you're going to be in trouble. Like these types of things happen fairly frequently, but it all happens like fairly under the radar. Like no one thinks, most people don't think that these behaviors are things that the university should know about. And so we don't know how much hazing happens at UCSB, but we know that statistically nationwide, about half of students are hazed before they come to college and about half of students who participate in some sort of organization at college nationwide will be hazed during their time in college. So that's statistically like you've got pretty good odds that it's going to happen to you. Um, and the thing that's interesting about hazing is that a lot of these sort of lower level hazing are things that might not bother you. Um, you know, you might think it's funny. You might even think it's fun. But depending on the experiences that you've had in your life, it could be really traumatic. So for example, I was actually hazed in high school and for a long time, it was just sort of like a funny story. Like, oh, you know, if you know me, it's ludicrous that I have been kicked out of Walmart in rural North Carolina at like 11.30 PM on a Friday night. Like it was just silly. It didn't bother me. It was just like a little bit embarrassing. But what happened is this club that I was in, they we were invited to a sleepover and they dressed us all up in these ridiculous outfits and blindfolded us and put us in cars with the older girls in this club. And they drove us to Walmart in these cars and dropped us off in the parking lot and then drove away and went into the store and hid. And we then had to take off our blindfolds and go into the store and find the people who drove us there. Again, to me, it was just like, this is embarrassing and silly, but for someone who had different life experiences, who had had different family experiences, who had any kind of abandonment or trust issues or anything like that, like that could have been really, really emotionally damaging. And so a lot of hazing behaviors are things where you have to think not just about like your average person, but the people who have had really hard experiences in their life or who have had different experiences than you have had and try to put yourself in their shoes and imagine like, how is this activity or this thing that we want to do going to hit for that person differently than it might hit for me? And like, is this going to feel safe for everyone? Yeah. Are there any like repercussions or consequences if you are caught hazing? Oh, certainly. I mean, it depends a lot on the group and the behaviors. I mean, it's anything from a warning up to the group being shut down by the campus to individuals facing consequences at an individual level. I mean, there's, it runs the whole gamut. Um, and it also depends a lot on how the group shows up when we say like, Hey, we think there could be a problem. Um, you know, one of the worst hazing cases I've ever worked on as a professional, the students actually, when we called them in showed up and we're like, yeah, this is happening. And we're, we've been concerned about it for a while, but we just don't know how to stop it. Please help us. And so that went really, really differently than I thought it was going to versus some others where like we put in a lot of work with these students to try to get them to see that what they were doing was wrong. And then they 
didn't really do it and they wound up getting shut down, even though their behavior was much less bad. So it depends a whole lot on, on the circumstances, but yeah, there's definitely consequences for it. And, but I think the most important thing is that we would much rather educate organizations on how to do things right and help groups and like this organization that I mentioned, like help them figure out how to make a change then find out about it when something goes horribly wrong and then have to get involved and, you know, force them to make a change. Like it's so much easier to make proactive change than it is to have to wade into a really bad situation and untangle everything and, you know, either make a change or say like, sorry, this is over kind of a thing. Yeah. That's awesome. The way you phrased it, that like you're, that the point is to teach people and stuff before something really goes wrong. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I was here in 2014 when the shooting happened in Isla Vista and it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. At the time I was teaching a really large um, introductory course in the music department and it was getting back on stage. It happened over the weekend. Monday was a holiday or they canceled classes on Monday and my class was on Tuesday. Walking onto that stage that day in Lottie Lehman and addressing those 400 students was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, Walking into the soccer stadium to go to the memorial and seeing the news media all there shoving microphones and cameras in my students' faces was like sickening. Um, So like I've been there when tragedy strikes a campus and I really don't want it to happen again under my watch, which is one of the things that keeps me going on the hazing prevention work because it's not easy work. It's not sexy work. No one, most people do not wake up and think like, yeah, like I really want to work on a hazing prevention today. It's really just me. Um, but it's really, that's what keeps me going is like knowing that something terrible could happen. And I really want to reach these groups and help them make a change before something terrible happens. Cause I don't want our campus to go through that again. Yeah. That was a scary time. I was probably in high school when that happened. And I was, I was born in Santa Barbara. So I, I also lived through that. Like I, I had older brothers. I remember them watching like the videos that that guy posted and stuff. It was some crazy stuff. I mean, we were living in Elwood at the time. And I remember going on a jog that weekend, trying to like clear my head and just looking at down the coast a little bit and just seeing the helicopters like flying over IV and being like, this is madness. Like, you know, that's not the reason we want our little community and our great institution to be getting this kind of national attention. Um, So yeah, that's, that's what, what I do with hazing prevention is sort of try to figure out ways to educate our whole campus community. Cause it's not just the student. I mean, the students need to know these things, but it's also like faculty and staff need to know the signs. They need to understand what hazing is so that when they see something, they can say something and we can step in and say like, Hey, let's see how we can make a change. And you know, we're an educational institution. We would much rather have an educational intervention than have like, uh, okay, that's it. Like this is over. We're shutting you down kind of a thing. Cause like not only are Students probably not going to learn anything from that, but it also frankly makes them more likely to kind of just like go underground and hide what they're doing more. And then we have even less way of like monitoring things and making sure that people are staying safe. Yeah. Dang, man. I had never really, really dwelled into, into, into it, you know, like, again, I've only heard about it in movies and then, um, you know, national news and stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I think the other thing that's interesting is that people, you know, when you see these things in movies, it's almost always fraternities and sororities. And so people assume like, oh, that's not an us thing. That's like a Greek life problem. But statistically in nationwide data tells us that you're more likely to be hazed in an athletic situation. So either on a team or in a club sport, than you are in a fraternity or sorority. And actually our fraternity and sorority students are super well-educated. They get a lot of infrastructure from their national organization, from the campus, 
on hazing prevention and leadership and all those kinds of things. But we have about 400 other registered campus orgs on campus that don't have the same level of national support as fraternities and sororities do, or most fraternities and sororities. And so there's a lot of other groups out there that are, you know, also in most cases, unwittingly doing these things. Like most of the time, hazing is not intentional. It's just, oh, this is what was done last year. So we're just going to do it again, kind of a thing. And it's a lack of critical thinking around like, well, why are we doing this? And what's the point of this? And like, how are we, like, what are our goals as an organization? What's important to us? How are we planning these experiences to align with those goals and values? Um, Cause you know, you're here to, to learn critical thinking is such a huge part of being a college student. And a lot of times students are not applying that outside of the classroom in the way that we wish they would. Yeah. So it's around 11.55. I don't know what time you have to go. But I have time. <laughs> perfect. Um, yeah. Is there anything else that that you think your expertise or through your experience be helpful to someone? I think college students come in to universities, and I'm sure it's not just UCSB, thinking that they need to have all of the answers for themselves. Like they should already know how to do things. They should know how to study. They should know what they need to know, all they're doing is going to call, going to class to get that information and then like writing the papers or taking the exams or whatever. But there's a lot that you don't know. And I think a lot of students are afraid to ask. Um, so many times I talk with students who are like, well, like this has been happening and this has been happening and things just snowball. Or they think that if they just like, don't think about it for a while, maybe things will get better. Um, let me tell you, like, if you're doing badly in school, like pretending that you're not, it's not going to help. If, you know, if you're struggling with something, most of the time pretending that it's not happening is not going to help. Um, and certainly at UCSB, and I think at most other higher educational institutions, there is so much support for students. There are so many staff whose literal whole job it is to be here to support students. But if the students don't ask for help, like we most of the time can't help until things get really bad. Um, so I think just encouraging students to think about what they might need and ask someone, even if it's, and I always say like, even if you're asked the wrong person, most of the time they're going to at least get you started going in, a, in the right direction. Um, and so I think students need to be better about asking for that help when they need it um, because it would make, I think, a lot of folks' lives easier. I completely agree with that. Even even if it's not an issue, just reaching out to someone, like you said, like office hours, all these things, people miss out on opportunities. Like me having interviews with professors, the UFC fighters, like because I'm asking, I'm going out of my way. I'm like, I'm not, nothing's going to fall in my lap, you know? Yeah. And I mean, asking for help is hard. I think particularly folks from certain cultural backgrounds get this idea that like asking for help is a sign of weakness or it's not like you should, you should be able to be self-sufficient. You shouldn't be asking for help, but like, it's literally my entire job is to be here to help people. And I, there's like hundreds and hundreds of employees in student affairs. And I think that it's, you know, it's, even if you don't have like some kind of cultural block around that, like it, it's hard to ask for help. It's hard to admit that you might need help. Um, but most of us need help. Like a lot of the time. Like, so asking for that help when you need it is, is hard, but it's the right thing to do. And I wish more students would ask. Yeah. And you mentioned you're from the East coast. Is there any cultural differences that you notice from the East coast coming to the West coast? <laughs> oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I grew up in North Carolina, so the culture is incredibly different there. Um, one of the first, well, 
a, a silly thing that I noticed is that like skateboarding is still a thing here where it definitely is not in back East. Like I walked onto campus and I was like, did I just walk into like a nineties movie? Like what is going on here? Um, so that was sort of funny to me is that like skateboards are still a thing here, but I think also, and again, I moved here in 2009. So a lot has changed like in our cultural zeitgeist since then, but I do think that getting mental health support here is a lot more normalized. Like back East, it's sort of like a joke that like Californians are always talking about how they go to therapy. And like, I think back there, people sort of laugh about it, but like, yeah, we should probably all be going to therapy. Like if you're not going to therapy, you probably should be because like most of us could probably do with a little extra support in that area. Um, and that's definitely something I noticed is that like, I got here and people were like, oh yeah, my therapist said this. And I was like, wait, that's, that's real. Like, oh yeah, I guess it is. Like, that's good. Like most of us could probably benefit from that. Yeah. And students get, I believe, is it one free therapy session per? No, it's like at least five. Dang. So at UCSB, your fees are paying for CAPS. So you can go to CAPS and they will get you an appointment. And most of the time they will either see you for a little while and say like, okay, like you have the tools now to, to keep working on this on your own. Like, let us know if you need extra help. Or they'll say like, you know, you would really benefit from working with someone over a longer period of time. Like you need to develop that relationship. This is work that needs to be done over a longer period of time. We're not set up to do that at CAPS. Um, they, there's just way too many students and not enough folks there, but they'll help you connect with someone in the community. Ideally someone who takes your insurance, um, who can continue that support. So that's the one, that's another thing I always say to students when I'm referring them to CAPS is like, if after a couple of sessions they say like, okay, we're going to help you find someone else. It's not you. It's not that your problems are too big for them. It's just that they do not have the resources to develop those long-term relationships with people. Um, but there are plenty of folks in the community who do have that capacity. And so, you know, going there, asking for help, there's no shame in it. Like so many of our students go to CAPS every quarter and it's such a valuable resource that's available. Yeah. Would you mind mentioning some of the other uh amazing resources we have on campus, whether it be EOP on us and kind of explain what they are, if you know what they are. Sure. I mean, I know a little bit about most of the resources on campus. So EOP, uh, the Educational Opportunity Program, is for our students who are first generation and or low income. And so that's a really, again, valuable tool in combating that um, hidden curriculum of academia. They have advisors there who are trained specifically to work with students from those backgrounds on the specific issues that really come up in with those that population of students. Um, and a lot of the folks who work there are from those populations themselves. So they've they've done this themselves. They're, they can really relate. They have a fabulous team of peers who also work there who can, you know, support students. Sadly, Ozzy retired. I, I was so sad about that. Oh my gosh. I almost cried at his re retirement party. It was beautiful. Um, but yeah, so EOP is great. Another one that I think students don't take enough advantage of is CLAS, the Campus Learning Assistance Services. It's our tutoring center. Um, again, you pay for it with your fees, so you should use it. Um, they have tutorial groups for specific classes. They have language support. They have a drop-in writing center. They also have folks who work with you on academic skills. So if you feel like you could be studying better or planning your time better, that's a great place to go. And they also have a lot of website uh, resources on their website. The other one that I'll mention, one of my favorite departments on campus is health and wellness. They put on more events than just about any department that I am aware of, including every quarter they bring dogs to campus for dog therapy day, which like is just delightful. Um, and all of the people who work there are just like wonderful humans. 
um, who really care about our students doing well. And it's one of those things that I think students don't necessarily think about, but it's a great way to sort of, even if you're not in like mental or emotional distress, a lot of their events and activities, they have meditation all the time. It's just nice ways to sort of like do some self self maintenance on like making sure that you're taking some time for yourself, taking care of yourself. Um, and they just do wonderful work. Nice. Heck yeah. Thank you. And then let me check the, how long it's been. Perfect. Is there anything that you want to end off with any message, anything from your experience? It's about an hour. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. Literally anything. It could be an experience, could be a saying, could be a movie you watched that like has really impacted you. I think it sounds really cheesy, but just like making the most of your time. It's, it's hard because I know not all students have the luxury of being able to just like come to college and like try out all these things. Like I know a lot of our students have to work. They have to, you know, support families either locally or back home. They have to, you know, they have a lot of obligations, but I think trying to find space for yourself at school, even if it's just like one hour a week to do something that really makes you tick outside of class is a really important way to make sure that you're really taking advantage of the opportunities that you have at college. Um, the other thing I'll put in a plug for is just studying abroad. Um, again, if you are able to pay for UCSB, you are able to pay for study abroad, your financial aid will transfer over. Some of the programs are even less expensive than coming to UCSB. And it's such a phenomenal, phenomenal experience to live in a culture that's completely different than yours. Um, you can take all of your classes in English. You don't have to speak the language. They will teach you the language. Um, I did a semester abroad in Austria as a junior in college. And then I spent a year in the Czech Republic in graduate school. And both of those experiences taught me not only a lot about myself and, you know, what I can do, like they're, they were hard. Both of those experiences were really hard and it showed me the fortitude that I have in myself, but it also, you know, you learn a lot about how the world sees America and how, you know, like international news stories are presented differently in other countries than they are in America. Um, and I think it's just a really important experience that everyone should have is go live somewhere else for a while, like try out something new, sample the local fare, learn the language, do a little travel. Um, it's so worth it. And it's such a valuable experience. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with me and coming on the podcast and sharing the knowledge. Of course. Thank you for inviting me. This was fun. Of course. Thank you. Thank you.